This podcast contains adult themes and may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome to Class A Felons B-Film C-Cups. I'm your hostess, Paris, and this is part of our first season, Accessories to Murder. This episode is titled, The Bluest Shot at Eyes in Texas. Unfortunately, my partner in crime is not here again with me this week, but she should return shortly. And in the meantime, you'll have to listen to me prattle on for a while. But I think that this will be of interest to you. It was to me. And there's a lot to get into. So let's go ahead and dive in. The historiography of the 1930s in the Midwestern and Southern areas of the United States will forever be shrouded in a dust cloud of deprivation, uncertainty, and despair. During the country's Great Depression in this decade, the employment rate was over 20%, banks were shutting down, farms were being foreclosed, and a climate phenomenon known as a dust bowl ruined crops and people's lungs. The green Midwest turned into a barren desert complete with sand dunes. America turned to the new talkies which had replaced silent film to help distract them from their personal struggles. In 1933, Two impoverished young women's lives would briefly intersect because of their unflappable and at times seemingly irrational love and devotion for two brothers. Now many of us are most familiar with the legendary Barrow Gang through the highly stylized 1967 film classic Bonnie and Clyde starring Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway. Or if you're around my age, you know them through that other tragic love story of Brenda and Dylan in the TV show Beverly Hills 90210, who dressed up as Bonnie and Clyde for a Halloween party. And there was also a 1992 made-for-television movie called Bonnie and Clyde, The True Story, which was anything but true. I have to admit that I have an unexplainable fondness for it. Despite the background music that periodically disorients me into thinking I'm watching a 1990s Lifetime movie about some wayward stripper and rebellious cop who fall in love and ride into the sunset on a Yamaha. But I like it because it gets so many of the aesthetics right. Clyde's look is perfect, and Bonnie's wardrobe is on-the-mark authentic vintage and expert reproductions. They even recreated an exact copy of the striped sweater outfit that the real Bonnie wears in her most famous published photos. The only miss here is her hair. It's not styled like the real Bonnie's or like any woman from the 1930s. If you're interested in having a look, the full movie is on YouTube. In the 1967 film version, Beatty himself plays Clyde Barrow as tall and debonair, quick in wit and on the draw. Dunaway, as his outlaw girlfriend Bonnie, is similarly long-limbed and angular. She never appears less than strikingly gorgeous, even after getting shot. Gene Hackman, in the role of Clyde's brother Buck, is endearing, even as he repeats the same bad joke throughout the film, and Estelle Parsons, as his wife Blanche, is dowdy and shrill. She and Buck seem to be very much older than Bonnie and Clyde. And this is certainly the way I always pictured the two couples in my mind's eye, even as I researched the real Barrow and Parker families over the years. Between 1932 and 1934, 
Clyde and Buck Barrow were directly involved in the murders of 12 people, including nine law enforcement officers. Clyde was potentially the actual murderer of seven of these, and Buck personally killed two officers. In addition, they committed armed robbery, mostly at gas stations and grocery stores, but also occasionally banks, armories, and small businesses. They stole so many cars that they themselves probably lost count. Their favorites were black Fords with fast V8 engines. But the story I'm going to recount today is about their ability to steal hearts. Because the tale is so complex, I've had to leave out details in order to focus on the women who quite literally rode shotgun with them. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910, in the town of Rowena, a farming community in West Texas. She was the third child of Charles and Emma Parker. Their first child, a son named Coley, died of what was known as crib death, which is now called Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, or SIDS, and has no known cause. Her father was a brick mason, which elevated his socioeconomic position in that community. Bonnie had an older surviving brother, Hubert a.k.a. Buster, and a younger sister, Billie Jean, who came along three years after Bonnie's birth. And yes, she was named after a jammin' Michael Jackson song. Their mother, Emma, a housewife, gushed about baby Bonnie, recalling that she was, quote, a beautiful baby with cotton-colored curls, the bluest eyes you ever saw, and an impudent little red mouth. Rowena's First Baptist Church was at the center of the family's lives, and Emma contributed to every social event and church supper. At age three, Bonnie participated in a children's program in which several youngsters were selected to sing solos in front of the congregation. Ascending the pulpit, Bonnie looked angelic in a dress covered with starched bows and ruffles, but shocked the congregation by suddenly belting out the song, He's a devil in his own hometown, in a brazen, honky-tonk, barmaid fashion. Around this time, an uncle taught her some swear words, which she repeated to her father, Charles. On previous occasions, Charles had spanked her brother Buster for using slang and the word darn, but he couldn't bring himself to punish his adorable daughter. When Bonnie was four years old, her father suddenly died just two days after his 30th birthday. No one seems to know why. Emma, with no resources in Rowena, moved 240 miles, or 386 kilometers, east to live with her parents in what was then known as Cement City, which is now a neighborhood in Dallas, Texas. Her mother watched the children as she found work as a seamstress in a factory that made overalls. Cement City was a segregated and highly polluted area. Nevertheless, Emma ensured that she and her children continued to walk to church each Sunday. Despite this piousness, Bonnie was uncontrollably rambunctious. At home, she would set small fires to admire the flames and would sneak wine from her grandfather's stash. At school, she would get into fights with both boys and girls over stolen pencils and schoolyard pettiness. But she was always on the side of the less fortunate and would break her own pencil in half to share it if someone needed one. She was also an attention seeker and natural performer. She learned to play the piano. In one school pageant, Bonnie and her classmates unfortunately performed in blackface, which was a popular vaudeville routine at the time. She stole the show by spontaneously doing somersaults and cartwheels. Bonnie always wore her hair in a blonde bob with short bangs most of her life, 
Many of the small boys developed crushes on her at school, and Bonnie came to expect gifts of candy and gum from them. She began to dream of becoming famous. Initially, she planned to be a star on Broadway someday, even as she continued to be at the center of fights at high school football games. Other dreams included becoming a Hollywood actress and a famous poet. But more immediately, as a teenager, Bonnie became obsessed with makeup and clothes. The 1920s flapper look was in fashion, and cloche hats, along with long jersey skirts, were essential wardrobe items. At age 15, Bonnie posed for a photo glamour shoot. She looks older than her age. Her eyebrows are plucked thin, her hair is permed and extremely short, and her lips, evidently painted a dark shade of red, are outlined in an exaggerated Clara Bow bow shape. Clara was the current and first it girl of Hollywood. And this was part of Bonnie's problem. Despite her mother's idealistic gushing over her looks as a toddler, Bonnie as a teen was just ordinary looking. Nothing more, nothing less. And while Bonnie was bright and even won a spelling bee at her high school, she wasn't college bound. The only tenable career options for a woman, even with a high school diploma in that time and place, were factory worker, maid, waitress, or shop clerk. Around the time of her glamour shot, Bonnie met a high school boy named Roy Thornton. He was a rather big guy and he dressed well, which was important to Bonnie. She soon went out and got a tattoo on the inside of her upper right thigh of two hearts labeled Bonnie and Roy, connected by arrows. Just five days before her 16th birthday, on September 25, 1926, she and Roy married and Emma gave reluctant consent. Both teens quit high school. Almost immediately, Bonnie became homesick for her mother, even though the young couple lived close to Emma. She was at her mother's home to visit nearly every day, and often insisted that Emma come back with her to spend the night at the newlyweds' home. Eventually, she convinced Roy to move into Emma's house with her. Bonnie hoped to have a baby, but her family has hinted that some previous medical procedure caused gynecological issues which left her unable to conceive. Aside from these problems, Bonnie had never bothered to find out exactly how Roy planned to earn money. He would often disappear, and 11 months after their marriage, he was gone for 10 days unannounced. He didn't try to contact her while he was gone, and he offered no explanation when he returned. Instead, he began to drink heavily. When Bonnie expressed her disapproval, he struck her. Two months later, he disappeared again, this time for 19 days, and when he took off for a third time... Bonnie suspected that he'd left her for another woman. Her mother suggested she divorce Roy, but Bonnie responded that she wasn't yet ready to. By January 1927, she decided that she needed to find a job to support herself. She began waitressing at a cafe in Dallas, earning only 3 to $4 a week, plus meager tips of a penny or two, despite her outgoing personality. As a waitress, she continued to care for the down and out. Her boss admonished her numerous times for giving away food to indigent people. She also began to date casually and wrote despondent diary entries like this one. Why don't something happen? Despite her low wages, Bonnie made sure to dress well. A common contemporary theory is that she earned additional income from occasional prostitution during this time, something that a number of young working-class women in the Dallas slums turned to. In 1929, Roy returned and was arrested for robbery. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Bonnie was over him by this time and never saw him again, but she also decided against divorcing him just then, figuring that he had enough to deal with. She even continued to wear her wedding ring. 
In November, the stock market crash wiped out the restaurant trade in Dallas, and the owner went out of business. Bonnie was again jobless and desperate. Let's shift the gear of our imaginary 1933 Ford V8 for a few minutes and turn our attention to the other woman in this story. Exactly three months after Bonnie was born, and nearly 400 miles, 644 kilometers away from Rowena, a baby girl named Benny Iva Blanche Caldwell was born in Garvin, Oklahoma on January 1st, 1911. She always went by her second middle name. Although many historians and apparently some of the Barrow family themselves believe that Blanche's father, Matthew's primary occupation was a preacher, he was actually a farmer and sometime logger. He occasionally shared informal testimony of his religious convictions, but was never called to preach, as he phrased it. Matt was 40 years old when Blanche was born, and his wife, Lillian Pond, was 16. When Blanche was still very young, her parents divorced. Lillian remarried numerous times, or according to some accounts, had relationships with men in which she used their last names without actually marrying them, and had other children, and Blanche was raised primarily by her father, who heaped kindness and love on his only child, which resulted in her being somewhat self-centered. However, Matt was often incapacitated, suffering from poor eyesight and hearing, and possibly also tuberculosis. Blanche claimed that she began working at age 15, although it's unclear what type of occupation she held. Lillian and at least one of her male partners may have been heavy drinkers. In one letter to her mother, Blanche wrote, You may not have taken one drink this year, but I bet you have drunk a half gallon a day. Ha! And to her mother's partner, Mr. Horton, I bet you stayed safe this Xmas, and I know you have stayed drinking. But Lillian apparently retained some control and influence over Blanche because she forced her 16-year-old daughter to marry 39-year-old John Calloway in 1927, an age gap that was eerily similar to that between her and Blanche's father. Calloway physically and emotionally abused Blanche, to the point, according to Blanche herself, that she was rendered unable to have children. In 1929, Blanche ran away from her husband to stay with a friend in West Dallas. Blanche was an exceptionally attractive brunette with high cheekbones and dark eyes. She was 4 feet 11 inches and her usual weight as a young woman was about 111 pounds. According to Blanche, on November 11, 1929, her 19-year-old self was walking down the street when she happened to encounter 27-year-old Marvin, aka Buck Barrow. Buck and Blanche struck up a conversation and almost immediately a friendship. Another account has them meeting at the home of a girlfriend at Buck's, who he dropped for Blanche. Buck was a petty criminal from an impoverished West Dallas family. His mother, Cumie, once said of him, He was a good boy when he was little. Buck had been married twice before, the first time at age 17. He had twin sons with his first wife, Margaret, a.k.a. Eliza, but one died at only five months old. Soon after that, he began a relationship with another woman named Pearl. Margaret divorced him, and he married Pearl, with whom he had one daughter. The ending of that marriage was blamed on Buck's restlessness. Less than three weeks after meeting Blanche, Buck was shot by police and arrested after an attempted burglary. He was sentenced to serve four years in prison and asked Blanche to write to him. 
At some point, but fairly quickly, they fell in love. They had pet names for each other. Blanche called him Daddy, which sounds weird, but was actually a somewhat common endearment in that time and place. Buck called her Baby. Now let's shift our imaginary V8 into a higher gear to revisit Bonnie Parker and the event that changed her life. On January 5th, 1930, at 19 years old, Bonnie finally found what she was looking for. She met Clyde Chestnut Barrow, Buck Barrow's younger brother, at a party near the West Dallas slums, and it was love at first sight for both of them. Clyde began his criminal career as a car thief. He had dark wavy hair, expressive brown eyes, and a dimple. He had a respectful, chivalrous manner with women. He was a slight 127 pounds, 5 feet, 5 and a half inches tall, and sensitive about his height. Bonnie was so petite, I mean, she's commonly believed to have been 4 feet, 11 inches, like Blanche, that he didn't feel so self-conscious about it. Bonnie immediately seemed to worship him, often clinging to his arm. Clyde also had three tattoos, two sets of initials, and a woman's head. He was a dapper dresser, always wearing three-piece suits, swoon, I have a weakness for three-piece suits, and fedora hats, which was a 1930s staple wardrobe item for well-dressed men. Clyde was such a great dresser that in one robbery, he was at first mistaken for a bank examiner. He drove a flashy car, and yet he was a resident of the West Dallas slums himself. Bonnie must have known he didn't gain these items through honest means, but she didn't seem to care. Writers James R. Knight and Jonathan Davis have made an intriguing suggestion about Clyde. He was a natural leader and always kept his head during stressful gun battles. Knight and Davis posit that, quote, Had Clyde been born 10 years later and entered the United States military at the beginning of World War II instead of the Texas State Prison at the beginning of the Depression, we might know his name as a decorated combat soldier instead of an outlaw. After meeting Clyde, Bonnie immediately introduced him to her mother. The day Emma met Clyde, he was in her kitchen, wearing an apron and making hot chocolate. He began regularly dropping by the Parker residence to court Bonnie. One night, a month after they'd met, Clyde stayed so late that Emma told him he might as well spend the night on the living room couch. Early the next morning, his close proximity to the front door made him the obvious choice to open it, wearing a pair of Bonnie's brother's pajamas when someone knocked. It was the Dallas police, who had somehow caught wind of where to find Clyde during his sleepover. He was taken into custody to be tried on eight different charges, ranging from possession of stolen goods, to car theft, to robbery, and other Texas counties. Bonnie became hysterical as the cops arrested Clyde, pounding her hands on the walls and begging the officers not to take him in. Emma suggested that her daughter might do well to stop taking up with felons. Instead, Bonnie immediately busied herself with letter writing and jail visits once she was able to do so. One excerpt from a letter Bonnie wrote to Clyde reads, I was so blue and mad and discouraged, I just had to cry. I laid my head down on the steering wheel and sure did boo-hoo. I imagine I sure looked funny with Maybelline streaming down my face. She also took it upon herself to visit Clyde's mother who had been raised as a girl in a strict Baptist household and still believed that only ladies of the night wore makeup. Bonnie took a while to get used to. 
Clyde got lucky and was sentenced to seven two-year prison terms to be served concurrently, or all at the same time. Just five days after Clyde was sentenced, his brother Buck escaped from prison in Huntsville, Texas on March 8, 1930. This was three months after meeting Blanche. When his father, Henry, heard the news, he just shook his head and laconically commented, That's Buck. Three days after that, while Clyde was still awaiting transfer to prison, Bonnie visited him in the county jail. Clyde asked her to go to the house of another inmate to find a gun, then smuggle it into the jail for him. He had already decided to escape, but he needed Bonnie's help. And Bonnie, in an instant agreeing to become complicit in Clyde's compulsion to commit crimes, took the map he passed to her during her jail visit. Underneath, he had written, You are the sweetest baby in the world to me. I love you. Bonnie kept this note for the rest of her short life. She successfully smuggled the gun to him that same evening, and Clyde, along with two other prisoners, easily escaped. But just 10 days later, they were recaptured, and Clyde was ordered to serve his full sentence of 14 years. He had just turned 20 years old and was assigned to Eastham Prison Farm, what historian Jeff Gwynn has described as, quote, the filthiest hellhole in the entire corrupt Texas criminal justice system. Here, Clyde killed for the first time. The man's name was Ed Crowder, and he had raped Clyde repeatedly during his first year in prison. Another inmate, already serving a life sentence, volunteered to take the blame for the murder. Even with Crowder's death, Clyde was miserable. He was assigned to backbreaking, continuous field work for 10-hour days, six or seven days a week, with a five to ten minute so-called lunchtime break. His brother Buck had asked Blanche to visit Clyde at Easton Prison. When she did, he told her he wanted to escape and begged her to bring him a gun, but she refused. In late 1930, Bonnie seemed to have moved on. Her letters to Clyde became less frequent, and she began dating someone new. On July 3, 1931, one month after finalizing her divorce from her first husband, Blanche married Buck, becoming his third wife in the town of America, Oklahoma. They honeymooned in Jacksonville, Florida. Almost immediately, Blanche began to try to convince him to turn himself in and serve the rest of his prison sentence so that it wouldn't always be hanging over both of their heads. Buck agreed, but insisted on first spending one more Christmas with his family. So, on December 27, 1931, less than six months after marrying, Buck and Blanche made the drive to the Huntsville prison, along with Buck's mother, Kumi, two of his sisters, and a brother-in-law. They asked to see the warden, who was surprised, but also surprisingly good-natured toward the escapee, who was voluntarily returning to prison. The Barrow sisters and brother-in-law decided, Hey, as long as we're here, why don't we do a prison tour? Blanche and Kumi weren't in the mood, so they sat down to wait in the visiting area. Shortly, Buck passed them behind a barricade, wearing white prison garb. Blanche made a scene, screaming, crying, and unable to control her emotions, very much like Bonnie Parker. Blanche lived briefly with the Barrows, but couldn't abide their cramped little three-room dwelling, and Kumi wasn't comfortable with other women in the house besides her daughters anyway. Blanche left Dallas and went to work at the Cinderella Beauty Shop, a salon that Buck's sister Artie owned with her husband, 100 miles, 161 kilometers northwest in the town of Denison, Texas. 
There she became a licensed beautician. Buck never saw his brother Clyde while he was within the Huntsville prison walls. Clyde was still out on the Eastham manual labor farm. Desperate to escape by any means necessary, he, or someone else at his request, amputated two of his toes on one foot on January 27, 1932. He did this in hopes of being transferred near his brother and obtaining a less backbreaking prison job. This self-mutilation was a fairly common practice at Eastham, which is a testimony to its horrific working conditions. In one of the first of many unlucky occurrences in Clyde's life, just six days later, he was granted parole, thanks to his mother's pleading with a state governor. If he had only waited one more week, he left the prison on crutches and never walked the same again. He hobbled his way straight to Bonnie's house, where she was entertaining a guest, her new boyfriend. But when she saw Clyde, she squealed, darling, and pounced on him. The other beau quickly sized up his chances and left without comment. Clyde wanted to dress nicely again now that he was free of prison, and when his sisters bought him a new wardrobe as a welcome home gift, every shirt was made of silk per Clyde's request, just like the gangsters and bootleggers styled themselves. In March, two months after he left prison, Clyde made a conscious decision to become an outlaw and return to the criminal lifestyle. This happened for primarily two reasons. One, he wanted revenge on Easton Prison for the countless rapes and cruel working conditions. He planned to stage a breakout and help as many men as possible who also wanted to escape prison. And two, to be fair, Clyde did try to earn an honest living for quite some time before giving up and dedicating himself to outlaw status. He sought out jobs and was by all accounts an excellent employee in any type of job. For a while, he worked as a glassmaker. But then the Dallas police would appear at his workplace and question him constantly about petty crimes he wasn't involved in. This garnered the notice of his bosses, who would immediately fire him, guilty or not. A frustrating cycle of harassment and lost jobs drove him back to his old illicit money-making schemes. Even the wife of a former sheriff's deputy later opined, If the Dallas police had left that boy alone, we wouldn't be talking about him today. What is less clear is why Bonnie decided to go on the road with him. She didn't seem to think beyond her immediate desires for excitement. Once Clyde decided that he was going out of town to, quote, pull some jobs, Bonnie lied to her mother, telling her that she'd landed a great job selling cosmetics in Houston, 240 miles or 386 kilometers away. This was really the start of Bonnie and Clyde. On March 25, 1932, Clyde and a partner robbed the Sims Oil Refinery. Clyde used a gun he'd borrowed from his sister-in-law, Blanche. Clyde's gang, in reality, ranged from only one to three sidekicks at any one time. When Bonnie began traveling with Clyde, his partners generally liked her. One named Ralph Foltz described her as, quote, articulate, thoughtful, and witty. On April 18th, this trio, Bonnie, Clyde, and Ralph, decided to steal guns from a hardware store in Tyler, Texas. Bonnie stayed in the car while Clyde and Ralph tried to break into the store around midnight. A night watchman who spotted the crime in progress began trading shots with the two men, although Clyde later claimed that he fired high above the watchman's head. 
He and Ralph sped off with Bonnie, but in a streak of bad luck that would soon cling to them like a curse, it began to rain heavily, and the car got stuck in mud on the dirt roads just outside the town. They made their way on foot in the dark to a farmhouse, where they pounded on the door and demanded the farmer's car. He didn't own one, but he did offer them his two mules. With no other options, Bonnie climbed on one of them with Clyde. We can only imagine the indignity she must have felt, fearful, with Maybelline once again streaking her face, and her probably splendid 1930s outfit completely soaked and smelling of wet mule. Throughout the night and the next day, a posse with loads of time on their hands tracked them, often stopping complete strangers to ask if they could check the seat of their pants for mule hair. They caught the gang running into a muddy creek. Then, in desperation, Clyde abandoned Bonnie for the first and only time. He ran right toward and through the posse. Miraculously, the men closest to him both happened to be reloading their guns, and in the confusion, Clyde got away. As the posse closed in on the other two, Ralph, in an attempt to protect Bonnie, advised her to tell the police that she'd been kidnapped by him and Clyde. Clyde's younger brother, L.C., and Blanche visited Bonnie in jail and agreed that Bonnie should present herself as a victim of the Barrow Gang. Initially, Clyde worked on a plan to break her out of jail, but eventually conceded that he didn't have the means and that Bonnie should wait and see what the grand jury would charge her with in two months' time. Clyde's younger sister Marie would later say that Bonnie was understanding of this and not at all upset with Clyde. During her incarceration, the other Barrows brought her clothing, shoes, and food, much of it bankrolled by Clyde. According to Bonnie's mother Emma, however, she swore she was leaving Clyde, although Emma noticed what she called a, quote, terrifying change in her daughter. Emma wanted to bail Bonnie out, but the jailer's wife convinced her to practice some tough parenting and to let her sit in jail to, quote, think matters over. But she wasn't exactly doing hard time. Besides the many gifts she received, her jailers allowed her to sit outside on the lawn and gave her stationery, which she used to write a collection of poetry she called Poetry from Life's Other Side. One poem was titled The Prostitute's Convention, and related the names of Dallas sex workers and the streets on which they met clients. This has sometimes been cited as evidence that if Bonnie wasn't a sex worker herself, she was at least intimately acquainted with the Dallas scene. Her personal favorite was a 105-line poem called The Story of Suicide Sal, about a woman betrayed by her lover. Bonnie was not a naturally gifted poet, although occasional stanzas contained some lyricism. She also had a seemingly uncontrollable habit of enclosing words she considered slang, and these were plentiful, within scare quotes. Consider this excerpt from Suicide Sal. I got on the, quote, FBA payroll to get the, quote, inside lay of the, quote, job. The bank was, quote, turning big money. It looked like a, quote, cinch for the, quote, mob. 80 grand without even a, quote, rumble. Jack was last with the, quote, loot in the door. When the, quote, teller dead aimed a revolver from where they forced him to the floor. She showed this one to her mother, who was shocked at Bonnie's familiarity with criminal vocabulary. In June, the grand jury declined to file charges, and Bonnie was released. She gave all of her poems to the jailer's wife as a gift, 
except for Suicide Sal, and immediately rejoined Clyde in Wichita Falls, Texas, about 140 miles, 225 kilometers, northwest of Dallas. Once again, she lied to her mother, telling Emma that she'd gotten a job in a cafe there. In August, Clyde robbed a train station for just $12 and a packing company for $440. That night, at a dance that Clyde didn't invite Bonnie to attend with him, Undersheriff Eugene Moore approached Clyde and two others on suspicion of illegal drinking. Remember, prohibition was still in full swing, and Clyde and one of the others fired at him, killing Moore. This was the third murder which involved Clyde, and there had been witnesses to this death of a lawman. He and Bonnie knew that if he were ever caught, he'd be sentenced to the Texas electric chair. Bonnie was an apologist for Clyde's actions, telling their families that if she were to ask him to stop his criminal activities, his mind would be on her feelings and he wouldn't be able to focus on his robberies. She also blamed law enforcement for, quote, making him what he is today. He used to be a nice boy. Folks like us haven't got a chance. Bonnie suggested they pay a surprise visit to her Aunt Millie in Carlsbad, New Mexico, in order to get far away from North Texas. She introduced Clyde as Jack Smith, her new husband. Aunt Millie was especially surprised that they'd brought along another man, Raymond Hamilton, on their honeymoon. He had been involved in the Moore shooting. Clyde, in an attempt to disguise himself, had dyed his hair a bright and unnatural shade of red, and the gang was exhausted. Clyde had driven the entire 475 miles, 764 kilometers, in socks, as he always did. Jeff Gwynn surmises that this may have enabled better contact with the pedals due to his amputated toes. It didn't take long for Aunt Millie to become suspicious of their expensive brand new Ford V8 and all the guns they brought with them for target shooting behind her house. She secretly contacted a deputy sheriff and asked him to drop by. When Deputy Johns arrived, Bonnie answered the door and the two men went out the back, around the side of the house, and held a shotgun they'd found inside the house on the deputy. The three fugitives then took him hostage on a road trip to Houston, Texas. Aunt Millie must have been relieved to see them leave. Johns didn't know who his captors were. Bonnie and Clyde were not yet well-known names, but he was cooperative and even suggested alternative routes to minimize their chances of being pulled over. The gang dropped him off in San Antonio, Texas. For the first time, their names were mentioned on the radio after their identities were pieced together. Since had taken a stolen car over state lines, J. Edgar Hoover and his Federal Division of Investigation, now known as the FBI, were interested in them for the first time. On October 11th, in the town of Sherman, Texas, 65 miles, 105 kilometers north of Dallas, a butcher in a small grocery store was shot and killed during a robbery. And this is where the story of Bonnie and Clyde hits somewhat close to home. My great-grandmother was from Sherman and was about three years older than Clyde. I don't know if she was still living in Sherman in 1932, but certainly her parents, my great-great-grandparents, and some of her siblings were. I never knew until after she passed away that Clyde was a suspect in that murder, and she never mentioned it to me. I would have loved to have been able to ask her what she knew about it and what people in town were saying at the time. Today's historians don't believe that police were correct in pinning this one on Clyde, though. A timeline of his activities indicated that he wasn't even in Texas on that date. And furthermore, shooting unarmed men wasn't something that Clyde did. Nevertheless, he and Bonnie both relished the increased media attention as renegade outlaws. Maybe they hadn't otherwise had a chance in life, as Bonnie said, 
but now they had a chance at infamy. Up until 1933, Bonnie, if mentioned in the newspapers at all, was referred to merely as Clyde's companion, otherwise she was nameless. By the beginning of the next year, she would be referred to more often as a tough gun mole, even though she rarely handled guns. With funds running low, they traveled into Carthage, Missouri. With two new gang members, Clyde tried to rob a bank, but it had been hit hard by the Great Depression and had no money. On November 29th, Bonnie was sent in to case another bank in Orinogo, Missouri. In those days, very few women had bank accounts and rarely even entered banks unless they were with their husbands or another male who handled their money for them. Bonnie aroused suspicion, and when Clyde and the others arrived the next day, the bank teller was ready with a pistol and an alarm. Clyde was armed with a Browning automatic rifle, which I'll call a bar from this point on, but it couldn't penetrate the lead-lined counter that the teller ducked behind. They escaped, but their take was only about $110, just over $2,000 in today's U.S. money. Disgusted by the measly heist, the other gang members deserted Clyde. But on Christmas Eve, Clyde acquired a new sidekick. W.D. Jones was only 16, but had grown up with the Barrow children in West Dallas, and the outlaw life seemed glamorous to him. He begged Clyde to let him come along on their travels. From that point on, whenever they rented a room somewhere, W.D. always slept with them, usually on the floor. He was afraid of the dark, and Clyde was used to sharing a room with lots of siblings, so it wasn't a big deal to them to all bunk together. Clyde and Bonnie had private time alone whenever W.D. went out on errands, which was often, since he was the only gang member who was still completely unknown. The three used nicknames for each other when out in public. Clyde was Bud, Bonnie was Sis, and W.D. was Jack. In private, Bonnie and Clyde were Honey and Daddy, and Bonnie called W.D. Boy. From January 1933 through March, the trio traveled aimlessly throughout Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. If money was low, they hid whatever stolen car they were driving in brush and slept in it during the night. They might eat nothing but crackers, Vienna sausages, sardines, cans of cold beans, or bologna sandwiches. When they needed money, the two men held up grocery stores and gas stations in small towns that wouldn't attract much attention. They loved to drink buttermilk, and Clyde and Bonnie both drank whiskey, although Bonnie drank to a greater extent. Clyde wouldn't drink when he was planning on driving. They acquired suitcases filled with sharp suits and the latest dress fashions. Clyde got Bonnie, the aspiring writer, a typewriter, and himself a guitar. They had issues of true crime magazines, which they loved to read. These were all piled into the back seat, since they kept an arsenal of weapons and ammunition in the trunk. Bonnie still took time to focus on her appearance. She had a makeup case and wore cosmetics as usual and experimented with hair color, from golden blonde to auburn to bright red. Clyde liked every color on her. She also wore high heels with her fitted sweater dresses, silk blouses and skirts, and tam caps, which looked similar to berets. Fashion historian Claire Hughes has written a Bonnie, quote, In photographs, the real Bonnie Parker is not especially pretty, but in scrappy shoes, midi skirts, and beret, she has style. Her origins in America's Depression years her job as a waitress, and above all, the criminal career that outraged norms and parodied the American dream, made her, in the attractive person of Faye Dunaway, a seductive icon, a radical chic. Although on the road, they frequently made brief trips back to Texas to visit their families for a few hours. They would toss a Coke bottle toward the barrel front door with a meeting time and location, always out in the country. 
Kimmy Barrow would then call up Emma Parker and query, do you know anything? This was a common, casual conversation starter in rural Texas. My great-grandmother, who as I mentioned, was from the same area and about the same age as Bonnie and Clyde, used to start phone conversations with me the same way. Kimmy would then tell Emma she was cooking red beans, which was a code to let her know Bonnie was in town, in case their phones were bugged by police. During these get-togethers, Bonnie was usually evasive about the gang's activities. Instead, she wanted to chat about local gossip, clothes, hairstyles, and food. That March, Bonnie's estranged husband Roy escaped from prison. He had never contacted Bonnie since she took up with Clyde, although he asked a fellow inmate who knew them lots of questions about their relationship. Another inmate also left prison that month, although by legitimate means, Buck Barrow. After 15 months of his mother and wife directly petitioning the state of Texas for a pardon, Governor Miriam Ferguson granted it. Marie Barrow, Clyde's youngest sister, later claimed that Blanche played upon the governor's sympathies by visiting her with three borrowed children and pretending to be pregnant with the fourth. Buck sent Blanche a telegram as soon as he was released, which read, Baby, I'll be home to you as soon as I can get there. She expected it would take him at least a day to take a bus to North Texas, but Buck, along with his youngest brother, Elsie, surprised her in the middle of the night, having borrowed a car the next morning, Blanche packed her things and prepared to move back to Dallas to live with her husband again. Before they were even able to leave town, two policemen followed them to a gas station, where they confronted the couple with shotguns. They asked if they were Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker, and insisted on taking them into the police station for questioning. Blanche was forced to follow them in the borrowed car. She happened to be wearing a brand new white and yellow spring outfit that day, with white gloves and pumps. Grease on the steering wheel stained her gloves black, and the brakes spotted her shoes with grease as well. Understandably, Blanche was quite put out and took it out on the officer, who emerged from the station an hour later to search the car. She insisted that he would have to help her repack all of her clothing if he went through them, and complained of her embarrassment at sitting outside the police station in such a small town where nearly everyone knew her and her employer. Finally, the Barrow brothers were released and on their way home again. Buck was excited to see his mother. Blanche was less enthused. Although Kumi seemed to have thought highly of her daughter-in-law, Blanche for some reason was under the impression that Kumi and some of the other Barrows were jealous of Buck's affection for her. Buck and Blanche began their second chance at marriage with $150, which would be a little over $3,000 in today's money. Fifty of it he received with his pardon papers. He spent that on two used Model A Ford coupes that he intended to fix up and perhaps resell. The other hundred was given to him by his oldest sister, Artie, who had also gotten Blanche her job at the Cinderella Salon. The couple's first plan of action was to visit Blanche's mother and latest stepfather, who lived just 15 miles, 24 kilometers from Dallas in a small farmhouse. Lillian had been keeping Blanche's little white dog named Snowball, which they both loved. Blanche hadn't been able to keep him while in Denison, and Kimi Barrow didn't like having dogs in the house. Blanche and Buck were spending the night and had just retired in an upstairs bedroom to what they thought would be a peaceful night's sleep. But around midnight, Blanche's stepfather answered a knock on the door and a man's voice asked for Buck. In a moment, a seemingly great number of footsteps marched up the stairs toward a cowering Blanche in her bed. It was Bonnie and Clyde. 
along with W.D. Bonnie was drunk and could barely walk. Kimi had told Clyde where his older brother was staying. They all pulled up chairs and the men put their heads together and talked. Buck was delighted to see Clyde again after so long. Blanche invited Bonnie to lie down in bed next to her, but Bonnie wanted to talk. She said she was lonely, missed having women friends, and declared that it was so good to have a woman to talk to. She confided in Blanche that she felt happier when she drank, and that the Barrows blamed her for Clyde's downfall. While Bonnie chatted, Blanche kept one ear honed toward the men. Perhaps for that reason, one of them suggested they go sit in the car and talk ostensibly to avoid further disturbing Blanche's parents, while Blanche kept Bonnie company in the bedroom. Around 4 a.m., Buck and Clyde returned to announce a plan they'd thrown together. They decided that the two couples would rent a place together, along with W.D., of course, in a little Missouri town called Joplin. It would be temporary for maybe a month so that Bonnie and Clyde could rest from their time running on the road. They tried to butter Blanche up by telling her she could buy whatever she wanted to furnish the rental and take it all with her when they moved out. They also promised her that they wouldn't commit any crimes during their stay in Joplin. Blanche at first outright refused. She hated guns, wouldn't think of joining up with criminals, and didn't want Buck to return to his old lifestyle. The others began arguing and pleading with her. Buck tried to emotionally sway her by speculating that this might be the last time he'd ever be able to spend with Clyde, who was now wanted for five murders. Finally, he resorted to emotional blackmail, telling her that he'd go alone if she wouldn't cooperate. She finally relented. Buck also insisted that they bring Snowball along. He traded in the two fixer-upper Fords for a 1929 Marmon sedan, but he had to throw into the deal the $100 his sister had given him. From the beginning, it seemed as though fate was trying to keep them away from Joplin. The car began to malfunction about 60 miles, 97 kilometers, into the trip, so they turned around and had to have Buck's older brother, Jack, repair it. On the next try, they got a flat tire. They finally managed to meet up with Bonnie and Clyde in Oklahoma, where the couple was staying before the last leg of their journey. Just like any other sightseer, Blanche took dozens of photos of the scenery they passed. They all reunited at a tourist park, a quaint little staple of 1930s car culture. Also known as motor courts and auto camps, these cottages first sprang up in the southwest near major thoroughfares in response to paved roads, cheaper automobiles, and increased leisure time. At a rate of about a dollar a day, they were generally affordable, yet well-maintained for travelers. They had bathrooms, furnishings, and sometimes even kitchens and carports or garages. The group stayed there until they found a suitable apartment in Joplin. The small tourist cabin occupied by Bonnie, Clyde, and W.D. was a mess, with clothes, luggage, and guns scattered everywhere. Bonnie didn't cook and hated to wash dishes, so these chores fell to Blanche, although Clyde and sometimes even Buck helped in the kitchen. Bonnie and Clyde also liked to snack on pickled pig's feet and olives. Bonnie drank quite a lot and chewed on lemon peels to combat the taste of liquor and the smell of alcohol in her breath, as many women who drank in that era did. Everyone usually stayed up until 2 or 3 a.m., noisily playing poker and cleaning their guns. Blanche found all this behavior annoying. In just a few days, they were able to rent a two-bedroom apartment in an upper-middle-class neighborhood just outside of Joplin. The building was a two-story with a stone exterior. The apartment was on the second floor, above two garages. There was one ground-level door next to the garages. Behind the door was an interior staircase that led to the apartment. The day they moved in, April Fools, naturally, 
The men went to a nearby department store to buy bedding and kitchen supplies. Blanche also went out and bought a bunch of jigsaw puzzles. During the Depression, these became immensely popular in the U.S. as they were a cheap form of entertainment. But the others thought Blanche's puzzle mania was bizarre. Eventually, however, they too became obsessed. First Clyde, then Bonnie, and W.D. Buck alone never got into them, claimed they gave him headaches. On April 7th, Prohibition was overturned in the U.S., and to celebrate, they bought and drank a case of beer each night, all except for Blanche, who didn't drink at the time. But there was, in fact, something to celebrate. These were the best weeks they would ever know. Their groceries and clean laundry were delivered to their apartment, although they would never let any delivery men up the stairs or even past the front door. Bonnie and Blanche sometimes went to the movies or shopping. Blanche later recalled, quote, Our arms were loaded with ashtrays, glassware, small picture frames, and anything else we saw that was pretty or that we wanted or needed, plus a lot of things we didn't need. So much money was spent that Clyde, W.D., and even Buck, just weeks after his pardon, began committing robberies again, breaking their promise to Blanche. While living in Joplin, the men even robbed a National Guard armory. Buck brought Blanche a pair of army field glasses, which she resented. She believed that Clyde was deliberately trying to get Buck into serious trouble so that he'd be forced to be on the run with his brother. Soon their neighbors began to take notice of them. They always kept their blinds closed, they seemed to be night owls, and Clyde once accidentally fired a bar while cleaning it in the garage. A neighbor complained to the cops, who soon suspected that their new residents were either car thieves or possibly bootleggers, as repeal at this stage didn't apply to hard liquor. On the night of April 12th, Bonnie and Clyde got into a terrible fight over a second stolen Ford V8 that he had brought home. Clyde struck her several times. It's unclear whether Bonnie struck him back, but she was known to hit him on occasion as well during arguments. They made up before bedtime, as they always did. Blanche and Buck agreed that it was time for them to return to Texas. Blanche was also sick of having to do all the cooking and cleaning. The next day, Buck changed the oil in the Marmon to prepare for the trip. Clyde and W.D. drove away in the stolen car to pull off a robbery somewhere. Blanche was getting ready to wash some clothes in the kitchen sink. Bonnie slept until about noon, as was her habit. When she got up, she went into the living room to rewrite some of her poetry. She was wearing a kimono over a nightgown and house slippers. Blanche wore black pumps and a blue crepe dress with lace shoulders and a low-cut back that had once been an evening gown. She'd hemmed it into a house dress. She took off her wristwatch, a prized possession that Buck had given her shortly before they married, so that it wouldn't get wet. Bonnie asked her to boil an egg for her. While waiting on the egg and letting her clothes soak, Blanche began playing a game of solitaire. She always referred to it as playing against Old Saul. Just as Bonnie's egg was ready, the women heard what sounded like muffled machine gun fire. Then, Blanche recalled, they heard Clyde holler, Oh, lordy, let's get started. Buck ran upstairs and told the women that the cops were there. Blanche started into the bedroom to grab her purse and coat, but ran into W.D., who grabbed her and almost pulled her to the floor. He told her that he had been shot and thought he was dying. He pleaded with her to help him. She assisted him downstairs and into the Ford. Then she ran around the car to look for Clyde and found a bloody man lying on the garage floor. Because he had brown hair and was wearing a blue suit like Clyde's, Blanche at first confused him for her brother-in-law. Then Clyde suddenly appeared. In her dress and heels, Blanche helped him push a police car that was blocking the driveway out of the way. 
In her confusion, she suddenly noticed another dead man in the driveway. Just then, someone began shooting at them. Blanche screamed and ran into the street. In the ensuing pandemonium, Snowball the dog ran outside. Now he began running with Blanche. Buck called out to his wife and she went back toward the apartment and car, but Snowball kept on running. That was the last known sighting of Snowball. The gang, all now safely in the car, took off. Blanche had inadvertently left behind her purse containing Buck's pardon papers, their marriage certificate, her decree of divorce from her first husband, and the title to their car, not to mention the car itself, her watch, her camera, and all their clothing and other belongings. Bonnie had left behind her poetry, and there were dozens of photos of them all, thanks to Blanche's avid interest in photography. Police would soon discover all these items and use them to ascertain their identities. Two of the most notorious and widely published photos, one of Bonnie playfully holding Clyde at arm's length, the gun, the other, Bonnie with a cigar hanging out of her mouth, would cement her reputation as a hardened, and worse, unladylike criminal, since women of her era only smoked cigarettes, and even that practice had to be done discreetly. They also published Bonnie's poem, Suicide Sal, which made her a published poet, but not a very respected one. In the car, Blanche nearly became hysterical. She began pulling at her own hair and discovered that she was still clinging to her deck of cards. Buck and W.D. both attempted to comfort her and begged her to stop crying. Blanche's beautiful blue dress was stained red with W.D.'s blood. He had been shot on the right side of his abdomen between two ribs, but he would recover. For two weeks, they did nothing but drive all over nine states, trying to evade police now that they had two more murders on their hands. Then, while in Ruston, Louisiana, they stopped so the W.D. could steal another car. Thanks to a medical kit Clyde had stolen, his gunshot wound was healing. After W.D. started the car and began to drive away, a couple suddenly ran out of a boarding house and began pursuing him in a Ford coupe. Clyde said, let's take him for a lark and chase the couple. This will sound familiar to anyone who's seen the original film version of Bonnie and Clyde. It's one of my favorite scenes, not least because Gene Wilder's in it. When they caught up to them, Clyde was angry that this stranger had the gall to chase W.D. In a rare act of violence against an unarmed person, he hit him with the butt of his pistol between his shoulder blades, and the man fell to the ground. Clyde made him get into the V8. Bonnie jumped out, cursed the woman, and told her to get in as well. The group, which now included hostages, continued searching for W.D., who had completely vanished. Bonnie and Clyde told the couple, a Mr. Darby and Miss Stone, who they were, which thoroughly frightened them. The woman was a home demonstration agent, something like a home economics instructor. Bonnie was so hungry, she asked Stone to describe what she'd cooked that day. Stone's companion, a fellow boarding house resident, was an undertaker. According to Blanche's latest recollection, Clyde asked Darby if he'd like to embalm him when he died. Darby replied no, that he hoped Clyde would live a long life. At this, unlike in the film version, there was laughter in the car, as Clyde knew Darby was itching for him to be in a state which would require embalming, but wouldn't dare say so. At the end of this wild ride, W.D. was still missing. Blanche privately surmised that the teen had had enough of the gangster life and had returned home to his mother. Around this time, Clyde and Buck went out to rob a grocery store, probably in Arkansas. For some reason, they had Blanche wait for them outside of town in a second car. She counted the minutes nervously until she spotted the car Clyde was driving roaring toward her. 
They didn't stop, just waved for her to follow. Clyde drove at 95 miles per hour, not even slowing down to turn corners. Blanche was such an excellent driver that she was able to trail him closely. Finally, when they stopped, she discovered that the men had both been hit with buckshot after the robbery, although not seriously, as they were laughing as they recounted this latest brush with death. Buoyed by their latest escapade, the two men decided to try a bank robbery a few weeks later. They squatted in the bank overnight, leaving Blanche and Bonnie with one of the cars hidden away in the Minnesota countryside. There was a terrible hail and thunderstorm that night. Bonnie, who was inordinately frightened by storms, hid her head and cried that she wanted her mother. Blanche, annoyed and tired of both Clyde and Bonnie by this time, laughed and teased Bonnie about her fears. On May 11th, Clyde and Buck attended to rob a bank in Indiana, but an employee pulled a gun on them. They ran to where Bonnie and Blanche awaited them in the getaway car, but they didn't get away fast enough. One man threw a log in the pathway of the car, and while Clyde swerved around it, another climbed onto the hood. Clyde screamed at Bonnie to shoot him, and she fired wildly. She later said this bad aim was intentional, as she didn't want to shoot an old man, but she may have struck two young women. A 22-year-old inside a nearby house had her shoulder struck and her cheek grazed, while another 22-year-old was wounded in her arm. Both survived. This is the only instance in which Bonnie may have directly caused bodily harm to innocent people. About a week and a half later, just after Mother's Day, another Barrow and Parker secret family reunion took place. Originally, Clyde had decided they wouldn't be able to see Emma Parker this time, but Bonnie became so upset that she pulled a gun and threatened to shoot him. The gang explained away the activities the folks back home had read in the papers as either mere larks, as in harmless pranks, or situations escalated by others. Nevertheless, both mothers cried at their children's plights. Blanche's sisters-in-law later recalled that she acted light-hearted and made everyone laugh. Blanche herself remembered, quote, We always found something to laugh about. It always seemed better to laugh than to cry. We had to laugh to keep from crying. Because Blanche was not yet well known for her involvement with the gang, she went shopping in Dallas beforehand. The Barrow brothers had pulled off a successful bank heist a week after the Indiana fiasco, and now they were flush in cash about $1,600, which would equate to over $32,000 in today's U.S. money. Blanche decided to splurge on herself. She purchased some tan jodhpurs, which are somewhat unfathomably popular in current vintage lifestyle communities. If you're not familiar with them, they're pants that are part of a horse-riding ensemble. They're tight in the legs, but an extra material that make them sort of flare out the hips. Blanche's sister-in-law observed that these were skin-tight, quote, breeches, and very nice and trim she looked in them, too. Blanche also bought some knee-high riding boots to go with them, as if she were on her way to participate in the Kentucky Derby. The gang all gave their families some money, and Blanche asked that some be sent to her mother. Bonnie didn't get a pair of jodhpurs, but when she admired the outfit of Clyde's 15-year-old sister, Marie offered to trade. Bonnie was so petite that they wore the same size. Bonnie also had exceptionally tiny hands, and her sister has said that she wore a size three and a half shoe, which is so tiny that women's shoes are no longer even made in that size. With all their money, the gang then decided to take a vacation to the Gulf of Mexico. They lounged on beaches in the states of Florida and Georgia, and Blanche posed for a number of cheesecake, pinup-style bathing suit photos. Blanche and Buck particularly fell in love with Florida. It brought back memories of their honeymoon. There, the two couples split up, having stolen a second car. 
Blanche and Buck went to Oklahoma to visit her father, while Bonnie and Clyde planned to return to West Dallas to search for W.D. and persuade him to rejoin the gang. They made plans to reunite about ten days later in Oklahoma. W.D. did rejoin Bonnie and Clyde. On the night they were to meet Buck and Blanche, Clyde was speeding at about 70 miles in a West Texas town when he missed a detour sign for a bridge that was being built. Yelling, hold on to your hats, this is it, he crashed into a riverbed rolling the car several times until it finally landed on its side. Residents of a nearby home rushed to the scene and helped first Clyde and then W.D. out of the windshield. Bonnie was underneath them. The car battery had been smashed in the crash and leaked acid all over her right leg. Her skin from her hip all the way down to her ankle simply evaporated and bone was exposed in some areas. She was carried to the local's home and treated with baking soda and salve as Clyde didn't want to alert any nearby doctors to their presence in town. The family became suspicious at this, and even more so when Clyde returned to the wrecked car to retrieve some guns. They alerted police. When the chief of police and county sheriff arrived at the front door with an ambulance, Clyde and W.D. emerged with guns. W.D. told the chief, You boys are just in time. We want to borrow your car. Just then, the homeowner's adult daughter moved toward the back door to lock it. W.D., thinking that she was going for a gun, shot at her, just grazing a finger. They took the two lawmen along with them, making them sit in the back seat of the chief's car with a critically injured Bonnie lying across their laps. Despite the lawmen's status as hostages, they carefully tried to cradle Bonnie to shield her from the rough bumps in the road. Once they arrived at the agreed-upon meeting spot with Buck and Blanche, Clyde ordered Buck and W.D. to tie the lawmen loosely to a tree without harming them, because, as he remarked, I've been with them so long, I'm beginning to like them. When he later discovered that Buck and W.D. had used the men's handcuffs, as well as barbed wire to secure the pair, he was upset. He hadn't wanted them hurt or too inconvenienced because of how gentle they were with Bonnie. Bonnie was in danger of losing her life and was in such terrible pain that she couldn't sleep. It didn't help that they drove for days straight and slept in the car. Aside from the injury to her leg, her chin was cut to the bone, and she had numerous burns and cuts on her face and right arm. She screamed even when she seemed to be unconscious. They all thought she would die. Desperate, Clyde finally contacted a doctor in Arkansas and told him Bonnie had been injured in a, quote, stove explosion. The doctor recommended she be taken to a hospital, but Clyde still refused. Instead, he decided to drive back to Texas alone and fetch her sister, Billie Jean, whose presence would at least be comforting to her. In the meantime, he found a supply of Amatol, a narcotic sedative, upon which Bonnie promptly became dependent. While Clyde was gone, Blanche took charge of Bonnie for a short period of time and cared for the rest of the gang. She had to do all the shopping and also took on all the laundry, cooking, cleaning, and nursing. As many historians have noted, Blanche had a tendency toward martyrdom, and Bonnie was nearly out of her mind. The two of them, along with Buck, began to argue. Bonnie jumped out of bed, which caused the sores on her legs to reopen, and hilariously announced she wanted to fight Blanche. Her irritability may have been caused by withdrawal effects from the Amatol at that time. Bonnie derided Blanche for being afraid to shoot at police, and told her she was in the way, just excess baggage. Buck defended his wife by contrasting her with Bonnie, whom he called a criminal and no-good crook. Apparently, there were no mirrors in this room. The damage to Bonnie's leg was permanent. Because she didn't receive any physical therapy, the tendons and ligaments tightened and shrunk, so that her knee was permanently bent. 
She couldn't straighten her leg or put weight on it, so for the rest of her life, she hopped. Most of the time, however, Clyde had to carry her. I don't think there were any collapsible wheelchairs in that era, so their lives on the road would not have allowed for any mobility devices to assist her. Sometimes, Clyde or WD had to place her on the toilet, then remove her afterwards. As Jeff Gwynn has pointed out, this would have been deeply, deeply humiliating to Bonnie. On June 23rd, after Billie Jean had returned home, the gang had to abruptly move on once again, despite Bonnie's precarious health, when Buck shot a police officer during a robbery. They then roamed 19 Midwestern and Southern states with no particular place to go. On July 7th, the men robbed another armory. They returned wearing stolen army uniforms and crashed through the door of a tourist cabin where the women were waiting. Their idea of a hilarious joke to scare them. Blanche was gifted another set of field glasses, since, as Clyde told her, about the only thing she was good for was night watch. In return, she silently called him a dirty rat. She'd perch on the car roof at night and scan the surroundings, sometimes washing her face with rubbing alcohol to help her stay awake. On July 18th, Clyde was exhausted from driving and insisted on stopping at a tourist park near Kansas City, Missouri. Buck argued that it was foolish to stop so close to a big city known for its high rate of crime at the time, but Clyde had spotted the nicest cabins it ever seen and refused to travel any farther. The twin cabins were in the same brick building, with two garages side by side between the living spaces. These were the only two on the property. They were conveniently across the street from a small store slash cafe and a gas station. To maintain a plausible cover, when Clyde rented the cabins, Buck and W.D. hid on the floor of the car so that Clyde could make the implausible claim that he was checking in with his wife, Bonnie, and his mother-in-law, Blanche. I agree with Jeff Gwynn that this was definitely a dig at Blanche, as the two had been getting on each other's nerves. The men immediately sent Blanche to buy some chicken and beer, giving her nothing but small coins to pay for everything. While waiting for the food, Blanche weighed herself on a scale in the store. She weighed only 91 pounds. The next day, one or two of the gang went to neighboring Platte City to buy medical supplies for Bonnie. That, along with the enormous amounts of food Blanche was buying, all the small change, the sheets of newspaper that Clyde pinned over the windows in his cabin, the fancy car that he backed into the garage as gangsters were known to do, the fact that Blanche was the only one who ever left the cabins, and last but not least, Blanche's shocking jodhpurs aroused the local townspeople's suspicions. In the 1930s, women rarely wore pants, especially in rural small towns, and certainly not skin-tight breeches like Blanche's. According to Gwyn's research, these jodhpurs were still the talk of the town in Platte City decades later. That night, just after Blanche and Buck had gone to bed, the local sheriff knocked on the door and ordered them out. Blanche tried to stall them by saying she had to get dressed first. Next door, Clyde and W.D. heard the exchange. Clyde is believed to have shot at the sheriff from his window, which set off a shower of bullets exchanged between the gang and a group of lawmen outside. Clyde was able to access the car via an interior door that connected the garage to his room. Blanche and Buck had no connecting door, so when they heard the car start, they darted outside. Buck was hit by a bullet that entered his left temple, fractured his skull, and exited his forehead. It miraculously hit no vital areas of the head, but was still a horrific and life-threatening wound. Blanche screamed and screamed, but somehow helped Buck get to the car. 
As they all took off, Blanche tried to shield Buck from the bullets that were still raining down on the vehicle. A burst hit the right rear window, and sharp shards of glass embedded themselves into both of Blanche's eyes. A bullet fragment burrowed into her hairline, and something struck her right arm as well. She experienced the very unsettling sensation of her eyesight fading away. She felt blood streaming down her face, but was so disoriented and in shock that she at first thought that her eyes had been punctured and that the wetness she felt was some kind of eyeball liquid that had been released. Buck was bleeding so badly that they could actually hear blood sloshing around beneath their feet in the car. They hid on a backcountry road and Blanche was able to clean some of the glass out of her eyes, but she could only faintly detect light and movements. Buck requested water, but there wasn't any. Blanche kissed Buck, and the scent of blood and gunpowder together made her vomit. Her hair was now soaked with blood as well. They drove into Iowa, and Clyde stopped to buy gasoline, as well as peroxide, mercurochrome, which is a topical anesthetic that contains a small amount of mercury, aspirin, ice, and bandages. That was all the medical equipment that Buck received for the head wound through which his swollen brain could now be seen. They poured the peroxide directly into the hole and wrapped up his head. The next night, they came across what appeared to be deserted woods just west of Des Moines, Iowa. This spot that they desperately hoped would provide them cover until they could recover and figure out their next move was a former amusement park known as Dexfield Park, which from 1915 to early 1933 boasted carnival rides, a softball field, a dance hall, a pool, a small zoo, and picnic and camping areas. It was now closed and abandoned, but still accessible. Buck was doing so badly that Clyde and W.D. dug a grave for him, expecting him to die imminently. He was delirious at times. At one point, Blanche awakened to find Buck holding a pistol and W.D.'s billfold. Buck whispered to her, Baby, see what I've taken from one of the soldiers that was laying here? He's drunk and I got his money. In delirium, his fondest memories were apparently those of being a crook. With nearly everyone incapacitated now, Clyde left W.D. in charge and went to the nearby town of Dexter to buy food and clean clothes, since theirs had once again all been left behind during the shootout. Blanche, who was very nearly overcome with fear and anxiety, asked Buck if he thought he could manage to eat some fried chicken. Buck good-naturedly replied, Anyone could eat fried chicken. Clyde bought the meal from a cafe-slash-meat market. The woman who took his order later described him as, quote, not overly friendly, but he was very quiet, very courteous, and very good-looking. Clyde politely asked to borrow china plates and silverware, since the cafe wasn't equipped for takeout orders. He promised to return them, and he kept his word. Blanche's eyes now really began to bother her. They felt dry and swollen, both eyes were full of fine, shattered glass, and one larger piece of glass visibly protruded from the left pupil. Both Bonnie and Clyde tried to pull it out with a pair of tweezers, but it was too slippery and they couldn't get a grasp on it. Two and a half days after discovering Dexfield Park, the gang themselves were discovered. This was a small rural town where locals were suspicious of strangers. A farmer found bloody bandages nearby and alerted the other townspeople, who alerted the marshal who surmised it was the battered Barrow Gang and alerted every lawman in the area. They organized an attack to take place at dawn on Monday, July 24th. Bonnie, taking pity upon Blanche, had offered to sit up all night and watch over Buck, 
But Blanche, although exhausted, couldn't sleep. In fact, the gang was all awake just after 5 a.m. that morning. W.D. was already roasting hot dogs over a campfire for everyone's breakfast. Bonnie was wearing only a thin nightgown because the night had been hot, but Blanche still stubbornly clung to her white silk blouse and tan jodhpurs that she loved. She also wore a pair of sunglasses to protect her eyes. Suddenly, confusion erupted. Blanche remembered Clyde suddenly saying, Look out! just before the posse began firing all at once at both them and the nearby car. Other witnesses, probably from the posse itself, recalled that someone from their group announced, This is the law, come out here, to which one of the gangsters responded, Get the hell out of here, you sons of bitches, we'll kill you. Regardless, W.D. was hit several times and suffered ultimately superficial wounds in the face, chest, and leg. Clyde was also struck with a more serious shoulder wound, as well as a slug in his leg and a bullet that ricocheted off of his head. Blanche recalled Bonnie suggesting they run for it, despite her wounded leg. Blanche pulled on her riding boots, which were full of glass from the shattered car windows. Clyde tried to lead the gang down a hill toward a nearby river, but Buck fainted halfway down. Disoriented from the blow to his head and desperate to save Bonnie, Clyde decided in a split second to press on and leave Buck behind. One of their pursuers shot Bonnie twice with shotgun pellets in the abdomen, which did not prove to be life-threatening, and W.D. was able to hide her in the brush. Bonnie remarked to him that she wished she had a gun. When he responded that it would be useless against the posse, she clarified that, no, she wanted it to shoot herself. The three waded across the river with Bonnie on W.D.'s back and managed to commandeer a 1929 Plymouth from a farmer. Initially, the man told them that there was no gas in it, so they poured kerosene into the gas tank instead. This powered the three outlaws for 38 miles, whereupon they stole another car and just kept on going. Meanwhile, Buck and Blanche were caught where Buck had fallen. He regained consciousness and told Blanche to leave him there, but she refused. She guided him step by step to a clearing, which used to be the Dexfield Park baseball field, where they sat behind a large log. After a while, she heard someone shout, There they are! Buck somehow still had his gun on him, and he shot it toward the posse. He was then hit in the back by gunfire and said, Baby, they got me this time, before collapsing. Blanche began to scream and beg the men to stop. They ordered the two to put their hands up, but Blanche shouted back that her husband was dead. Suddenly, though, Buck moved, and the posse began shooting again. Blanche stood up and miraculously wasn't hit. She later revealed that she gave up because she saw this as a way for Buck to die in a nice, clean hospital bed. The posse surrounded them along with a number of reporters who'd heard the rumor about the Barrow gang camping out in Dexfield Park. One raised his camera to take a picture of Blanche, but in her semi-blind state, all she saw was a shadowy man raising what appeared to be a gun at her, and she began screaming hysterically, thinking he was going to execute her on the spot. Instead, she and Buck were taken in separate cars to a nearby doctor's clinic. The two doctors were in the middle of a tonsillectomy, but they stopped to attend to their emergency patients. They were amazed at how clean Buck's hydrogen peroxide treatment had kept his head wound. He was coherent again, but as pale as a ghost, and told them that although it had given him headaches at first, it didn't bother him at all now, but the wound in his back was causing him a lot of pain. One doctor handed Blanche a glass of alcohol which she refused to drink. He told her, Little girl, you are going to need it. 
He later described Blanche as, quote, a highly tense, nervous person, highly hysterical and uncooperative at times. But when she was allowed to briefly sit with Buck, she became subdued. She asked her husband if he wanted a cigarette, and he asked her to light one for him. She placed a cushion from the office under his head, sat next to him on the floor where his stretcher was placed, and cried. Buck told her to go back and sit down on the divan and stop crying because it worried him. Blanche responded somewhat petulantly that she wanted to stop crying and was trying, but it hurt her feelings when he told her to get up. That was the last conversation they ever had. The doctor took Blanche into another room to examine her eyes. Blanche asked if she could use a lavatory. A nurse told her to first disrobe and put on a hospital gown with a towel wrapped around her. After doing so, Blanche was led to the bathroom. She spotted a door that led to the alleyway and tried to make a break for it, struggling with the nurse until officers arrived. When she was led back out to the reception office, police handcuffed her and wouldn't allow her to get near Buck again. She called his name, but he didn't respond, so he had probably lost consciousness again. She was led outside, screaming, Goodbye, Daddy, goodbye. As she approached the car, waiting to take her to jail, a large group of people had congregated outside. Women pointed, laughed, and sneered at Blanche. The officer who let her out can also be seen laughing in a photo as he holds onto Blanche's arm. Her hair was completely disheveled, a large mass of tangled curls matted with blood. She wore no makeup, and her face and eyes were swollen. Her weight was now down to just 81 pounds. She had lost 33 and a half pounds in six months, and 10 of those in just the last week. Three days later in the hospital, Buck died. He was 30 years old. Pneumonia had set in following chest surgery for his latest wound. His mother and brother Elsie were with him, along with Bonnie's mother and sister Billie Jean. Buck thought that Billie was Blanche. He gripped her hand and begged her not to leave him. While Blanche was sitting in jail, J. Edgar Hoover himself came to interrogate her. Doctors had been working on her eyes, removing bits of glass, although it would take many procedures before she regained some vision in her right eye. They weren't able to save the vision in her left. She was wearing a patch over it during the interrogation. At one point, Hoover threatened that if she didn't talk, he'd gouge out her other eye. But she had already told all she knew. The wife of the prosecuting attorney would recall Blanche as, quote, a very small woman, very soft-spoken and mild. She was so very tiny that it was hard to visualize her having the strength to lift a very large weapon. Blanche Barrow probably got into trouble because she fell in love with the wrong man. Also, before her sentencing, Blanche's first husband, John, contacted both the sheriff of the jail and Blanche's mother. What he wrote to the sheriff is unknown, but Blanche was furious. She wrote her mother, who had long been in touch with John, to pass along the message that she wanted nothing to do with him. Still, after her arrival at prison, John wrote directly to Blanche and sent her a gift. Whatever she wrote back was enough to keep him from ever contacting her again. On September 4th, Blanche pleaded guilty to assault with the intent to kill the sheriff during the Platte City gun battle, even though she hadn't fired a weapon or done much of anything except run around in a panic. Her courtroom demeanor was described as, quote, refined of speech and manner. She was sentenced to 10 years at the Missouri State Prison Farm for Women. Afterwards, she wrote a letter to the prosecutor thanking him for his kindness to her.
It's time to downshift now to the last leg of Bonnie and Clyde's journey. They had no clothes to wear after the latest ambush, so they had to cut holes in some sheets they found in their latest stolen car and stick their heads through them. They looked like people wearing the laziest Halloween ghost costumes ever. They were constantly driving again through numerous states. Finally, their longtime companion, W.D., told them that he wanted to return to his mother in West Dallas. He had had enough of the gangster life. Clyde and Bonnie were understanding and drove him home in September. Echoing what Ralph Foltz had once advised Bonnie a year earlier, Clyde suggested that if it was ever found out that W.D. had been part of the Barrow gang, he should just say that he was forced to go along with them. In mid-October, Bonnie's only niece and nephew both died suddenly of an unknown illness. They were only two and four years old, and Bonnie was devastated when she heard the news. She had doted on them. She began to drink heavily again, and her appearance deteriorated. She looked much older than 23, and like Blanche, Bonnie at this point was skeletal and no longer able to walk at all. On the evening of November 22nd, Bonnie and Clyde had arranged another family meeting with the Barrows and were about to see a carload of them out in the country. Some unknown person informed on them, and an ambush was waiting ahead, hidden behind a fence on the road they were traveling. Clyde and Bonnie approached the meeting spot just as the Barrows were arriving from the other direction. But Clyde suddenly had a feeling that something was wrong. So he drove right past the family car, acting as if he didn't see them. Although caught off guard, the posse began firing. It was dark, and they managed to get away, although Bonnie and Clyde both sustained a single shot through their legs from the same slug. The rest of the barrows were uninjured. In need of medical attention once again, Bonnie and Clyde sought out a safe house belonging to the notorious gangster Pretty Boy Floyd. Floyd, along with all the other big-name gangsters of the 1930s, like John Dillinger, Alvin Karpis, Jelly Nash, Machine Gun Kelly, and the Barker Gang, didn't think much of Bonnie and Clyde. To them, Clyde Bear was just a small-time punk, better suited to holding up mom-and-pop stores and gas stations than professional bank heists. Due to their pitiable state, Floyd's sister-in-law gave them some medical supplies, sheets, and canned food, but then sent them on their way. When Floyd found out about their unexpected visit, he told his family never to assist them again. In February 1934, a legendary former Texas Ranger named Frank Hamer was called out of retirement to track the Barrow Gang, with authorization to shoot up on sight, no questions asked. Hamer claimed that the idea of killing a woman bothered him, but at the same time, he had no qualms about calling Bonnie a, quote, female dog in heat. It was assumed in 1930s American society that any woman in an outlaw gang must be promiscuous and crawling with venereal disease. At this time, Clyde had a small gang together again, which consisted of 22-year-old Henry Methvin, who Clyde had helped to escape from prison while serving time for car theft and assault with intent to murder, and another escaped convict named Raymond Hamilton, who had several murders under his belt. Raymond brought along his girlfriend, Mary O'Dare, who was the wife of another crook who was still in prison. Clyde, Bonnie, and Henry immediately disliked Mary. Her idea of a 1930s gangster lifestyle was the same as many Americans who watched old films about glamorized gangsters. She expected to eat at nice restaurants and to be seen at fancy nightclubs. Instead, she slept in the back seat of the car and ate at deserted campgrounds. Raymond's brother described her as a, quote, gold digger with enough makeup on her face to grow a crop. 
She complained often, and Bonnie and Clyde didn't trust her. February was the same month that Bonnie and Clyde, unbeknownst to them, first set eyes on the spot where they would die in a few months' time. One of the reasons they liked Henry was that he was close to his parents. They offered to take him home for a visit in Bienville Parish, Louisiana, and fell in love with the area while they were there. A deserted house stood near the Methvin place, and Clyde and Bonnie stayed there. Its former residents had died of tuberculosis, a mysterious illness at the time, and no one else would live there for fear of somehow catching it. Bonnie and Clyde knew they weren't going to live long anyway, so they didn't have a problem using it as a rest stop, especially since it was still fully furnished. On February 27, the men robbed a bank outside of Dallas, Texas. The 1967 film famously depicts a scene from this robbery, in which Clyde, who had taken $27 from a customer, turned back to the man and returned his money, saying, You worked like hell for this, didn't you? Well, we don't want your money, just the bank's. This was apparently an accurate scene. In all, the gang stole over $4,000, about equal to $83,000 today. Clyde planned to split the money four ways, but Raymond wanted to include Mary in a five-way split. He argued that Bonnie, who hadn't done anything but wait in the car, was getting paid, so why shouldn't Mary? Clyde continued to refuse Mary a share, but he later caught Raymond stuffing extra bills, about $600, in his pocket. That, along with an offer by Mary to slip Clyde some sleeping pills so that Bonnie could take his money and leave him, was the impetus for the two couples parting of the ways. In March, Bonnie, Clyde, and Henry drove back to West Dallas to visit the Parker and Barrow families. In front of everyone, Clyde surprised Bonnie by pleading with her to leave him. He loved her, but he didn't want her to share his fate, which was inevitable death, either in a shootout or in the electric chair. He offered to write a letter, which Bonnie could take with her while surrendering, swearing that she had no part in any robbery or murder. Bonnie predictably refused. She wanted to stay with him, as Blanche had stayed with Buck, no matter what happened. On Easter Sunday later that month, they were going to meet up again with their families. Bonnie had with her a very appropriate Easter present for her mother, a bunny rabbit she'd named Sunny Boy. As they waited near a country road near Grapevine, Texas, about 25 miles from Dallas, three motorcycle cops approached. The leader, riding slightly ahead, kept going, but the other two, who could see the parked car, stopped. They probably thought somebody was having car trouble. Their shotguns were still harnessed to their motorcycles, and one wasn't even loaded. When Clyde spotted them, he whispered to Henry, Let's take them. Clyde would later say that what he meant was, Let's kidnap them as had done before with cops. Ride around with them for a while, then drop them off unharmed, far from home. But Henry, an aggressive man to begin with, had been drinking with Bonnie. He interpreted the word take as kill. He raised his bar and shot one officer dead. Clyde, immediately realizing that this was now a gunfight, shot the other officer and immediately fled with Bonnie and Henry to Oklahoma. The officer Henry shot was H.D. Wheeler, he was 24 years old, and this was his first day as a motorcycle officer. He was also engaged to be married in two weeks' time. His 20-year-old fiance wore her wedding dress to his funeral. Newspaper stories related the account of a farmer who lived several hundred yards from the scene of the crime. He claimed that he saw everything from his house and that it had been Bonnie who coldly shot one of the officers. It was also reported that, quote, a cigar butt bearing small teeth marks, such as might have been made by a woman, 
or maybe even Sonny Boy the Rabbit, right, was found on the ground nearby, lending dubious credence to the idea that Bonnie had participated in the murders. Previous to this, news stories about Bonnie had been almost worshipful. The photos published of her in her form-fitting sweater, rayon skirt, and heels after the Joplin shootout were extremely flattering, even with her chomping on a cigar. She and Clyde had been folk heroes, representative of struggling Americans and getting even with the banks which had ruined so many lives. Now she was believed to have killed a young man in his prime and destroyed his fiancé's life. The public began to turn on her. In the middle of the night on April 6th, their latest stolen V8 got stuck in the mud on the side of the highway just outside of Commerce, Oklahoma. At 9 a.m., the chief of police, Percy Boyd, and his constable went to check on the car after receiving a call about it. The constable thought he saw one of the men with a gun. He immediately grabbed his pistol and fired, no questions asked. Clyde and Henry both fired back at the policeman. The constable was killed, but Boyd was only stunned by a superficial wound to the head where a bullet had just grazed him. Clyde took him hostage, and when he noticed local farmers looking on, he shouted, Boys, one good man has already been killed, and if you don't follow orders, others are liable to be. He ordered them to help pull his car out of the mud. Forty minutes later, the Barrow gang, plus one hostage, were on their way. Chief Boyd could easily guess who his captors were. With Bonnie sitting in the front seat wearing a red tam, which is like a beret, she began to make small talk with him, putting him at his ease. Boyd even found that he liked Bonnie. At one point, she asked Clyde to stop at a stream where she could wash the police chief's wound, and she made him a bandage out of spare cloth. Clyde began warming up to Boyd himself, complimenting him on his shooting. Boyd had managed to get in a shot that whizzed uncomfortably close to Clyde's head. They bought him dinner and gave him a brand new shirt and suit coat to wear, since his shirt was stained with blood. Boyd even became convinced that the Barrow Gang had never meant to shoot any lawman, and that his own constable was to blame for this latest shootout because he was so trigger-happy. When they finally dropped him off hours later, he asked Bonnie what she would like for him to tell the press about her. Instantly, she had her answer on the one misconception that personally bothered her the most. Tell them I don't smoke cigars. The gang made it back to Dallas around April 19th, and Bonnie was finally able to give her mother Emma her present of Sunny Boy the Rabbit. She joked, keep him away from the cops. He's been in two gun battles already, and he'll land at Huntsville Prison if the law finds it out. But the families were legitimately stressed and worried. Someone suggested that Bonnie and Clyde flee the country and start their lives over in Mexico, but Clyde refused. He responded that he and Bonnie said their prayers every night for safety and that neither of them could ever think of moving so far away from the families. Then he made a curious announcement. He said that he and Bonnie loved the community of Bienville Parish, where Henry's family lived, so much that they were planning on buying property there. Then both families could stay on it for as long as they wished, and Bonnie and Clyde could go into hiding there whenever needed. The family saw a number of problems with this plan, but said nothing. They let them dream. May 6th was the last time Emma Parker would ever see her daughter alive. It was at another Barrow and Parker family gathering, but Bonnie had an opportunity to speak to her mother privately. She asked her to bring her body when she was inevitably killed to their home rather than a funeral parlor for a wake. She envisioned it as, quote, a long, cool, peaceful night together before I leave you, with just her mother, sister, and brother present. 
She also requested that her mother never say anything, quote, ugly about Clyde after they were dead. Before parting, Bonnie gave Emma a copy of a poem she written called The End of the Line, which had replaced Suicide Sal as Bonnie's personal favorite. It was 16 stanzas long, so I'm only going to quote selections from it. Now, Bonnie and Clyde are the Barrow Gang. I'm sure you all have read how they rob and steal, and those who squeal are usually found dying or dead. There's lots of untruths to these write-ups. They're not so ruthless as that. Their nature is raw. They hate the law, the stool pigeons, spotters, and rats. They call them cold-blooded killers. They say they are heartless and mean. But I say this with pride that I once knew Clyde when he was honest and upright and clean. But the laws fooled around, kept taking him down, and locking him up in a cell. Till he said to me, I'll never be free, so I'll meet a few of them in hell. From heartbreak some people have suffered, from weariness some people have died. But take all in all, our troubles are small, till we get like Bonnie and Clyde. The police haven't got the report yet, but Clyde called me up today. He said, don't start any fights. We aren't working nights. We're joining the NRA. And here she doesn't mean the National Rifle Association. She's referring to President Roosevelt's National Recovery Administration, founded to help relief efforts during the Great Depression by passing a minimum wage law and establishing collective bargaining rights for unions. The poem ends, If they try to act like citizens and rent them a nice little flat, about the third night, they're invited to fight by a subgun's rat-tat-tat. They don't think they're too smart or desperate. They know the law always wins. They've been shot at before, but they do not ignore that death is the wages of sin. Some day they'll go down together, and they'll bury them side by side. To a few it'll be grief, to the law relief, but it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. The couple continued to visit Henry's family, the Methfins in Louisiana. Early in May, Bonnie told Henry's sister-in-law, who was pregnant, that she was expecting as well. Due to her aforementioned inability to conceive, this was undoubtedly a wistful fantasy. Clyde's younger sister had also disclosed that Clyde was sterile due to a previous illness for which he was hospitalized as an adolescent. Nevertheless, the Methvin women, most of whom adored Bonnie, began planning how they might be able to help her once a baby arrived. On May 19th, the farmer who claimed had seen Bonnie shoot Officer Wheeler picked a photo of her sister, Billie Jean, who did resemble Bonnie, out of a lineup. Billie was arrested and jailed in Fort Worth, Texas. On the morning of Wednesday, May 23rd, Bonnie and Clyde were on their way to pick up Henry in Bienville Parish. The only route that would take them there was Highway 154. Henry had made arrangements with Clyde to meet at his parents' home, but what Clyde didn't know was that Henry, at the urging of his father, had also made arrangements with a local sheriff, who in turn made arrangements with Frank Hamer to ambush the couple from behind brush at the side of the highway. Hamer assembled an interagency six-person posse comprised of lawmen from Texas and Bienville Parish. They recruited an extremely reluctant Ivy Methvin, Henry's father, to provide a trap for Bonnie and Clyde. Ivy was eager to set up the couple, but afraid of being caught in crossfire. He was to pretend his truck had a flat tire. They would certainly recognize and stop to help him. 
Mr. Methvinsgol was to win a pardon for his son for his prison escape, in which a guard was killed, in exchange for betraying Bonnie and Clyde. Just before 9 a.m., Clyde bought breakfast from a local cafe, either breakfast sandwiches or hamburgers, and took them out to the car before heading to the Methvins. Clyde was saving his for later. Bonnie took a few bites of hers and then wrapped it back up. Bonnie wore a rust-colored dress with matching shoes, and Clyde had on a suit, a blue western shirt, a hat, and purple-tinted sunglasses, but as usual had taken off his shoes to drive. As he spotted Ivy Methvin ahead, he slowed and then stopped. The posse was on the driver's side of the car. One young deputy began shooting, and the others followed suit, firing about 150 shots in all. The fatal shot to Clyde was from the deputy's first burst. One bullet went through his left temple and exited the right side of his head, killing him instantly. Bonnie screamed, as Jeff Gwynn puts it, quote, a high, shrill wail. There was just enough time between Clyde's death and Bonnie's for her to realize that Clyde was gone and that she was now about to die. Just a few seconds. Just long enough for those thoughts to pass through her mind before her body was riddled with bullets. There were so many that it wouldn't be possible to determine which was the first fatal bullet. Some even went through Clyde before hitting Bonnie. Clyde was hit about 20 times, including two headshots, and Bonnie was hit 26 times, including three shots to her head and face. As word spread around the small parish, traffic became jammed along the highway. Souvenir hunters tried digging bullets out of trees, and much worse, attempted to cut off one of Clyde's ears and his trigger finger. Strangers snipped locks off Bonnie's hair and pieces of fabric from her dress, which was covered in blood and other gore. Some tried to pull the wedding ring given to her by Roy Thornton, which he still wore, off of her finger. The Ford was towed away with the body still inside, and some horribly bad planning took the gruesome sight past an elementary school during recess. Bienville Parish took on a carnival-like atmosphere, with 16,000 people in the streets and the prices of beer and cigarettes suddenly jacked up. As the bodies were prepared for embalming inside a local funeral parlor before being sent to Dallas, a cameraman got into the room and took nude photos of them. Bonnie's body, naked from the waist up, would later appear in several newspapers and magazines. Emma Parker fainted upon hearing the news from a journalist of her daughter's death. Contrary to Bonnie's wishes, she would not allow her to be buried next to Clyde, famously saying, He had her for two years. Look what it got her. He's not going to have her anymore. She's mine now. She also didn't bring Bonnie back to the family home, fearing the crowds that would have gathered outside. Instead, she held a public viewing the next day, for which Bonnie's body was dressed in a blue silk negligee with a white veil over her face to try to conceal her wounds. Her hair was freshly styled and her nails were painted. Around 20,000 people showed up to view Bonnie. Clyde's viewing was held separately at a different mortuary. Bonnie's funeral was held three days after her death. Clyde's was the day before. All of Clyde's family attended Bonnie's, although Emma had not paid her respects at Clyde's funeral. Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean, still in custody after being mistaken for Bonnie, was allowed to say goodbye to her sister in chains. Bonnie was buried in the oddly named Fish Trap Cemetery, then moved in the 1940s to the more upscale Crown Hill Memorial Park in Dallas. She's buried next to her mother and the niece and nephew who died in childhood. 
Her headstone reads, As the flowers are all made sweeter by the sunshine and the dew, so this old world is made brighter by the lives of folks like you. Clyde is buried three miles away in a plot shared with his brother Buck. Their headstone reads, Gone but not forgotten, an epitaph he suggested before he died. Meanwhile, Blanche Barrow got along well with her captors. The sheriff of the jail and his son had both been injured by the Barrow gang in the Platte City shootout, yet they were kind to her and the son visited her in prison. She even received a Christmas card from the sheriff and his wife. The salutation reads, Darling Little Girl, and is signed, Ma and Pa, Mr. and Mrs. Holt Coffee. Similarly, Blanche called the married couple who ran the women's prison, Uncle Billy and Aunt Clara, and she kept greeting cards from them all her life. She also made friends with the other inmates, including Edna Murray, who was known as the Kissing Bandit. She was allowed a camera in prison, so she was able to again indulge her interest in photography. Her left eye continued to cause her pain, but despite this, she began writing her memoir and worked on scrapbooks, which she titled, News of the Dead, News of the Living Dead. She read movie magazines, self-help books, books on etiquette, and books on reincarnation. She loved music, including the songs Vote for Roosevelt Again, Mexicali Rose, and The Yellow Rose of Texas. She also canned vegetables in the prison kitchen. The prison occasionally held dances, and I'm assuming these were women-only events, where Blanche excelled at dancing the jitterbug, the rumba, the samba, and the tango, thanks to dance set floor diagrams that she received from a correspondence course in popular dance. We do know that Blanche periodically visited the main prison, perhaps on errands related to work duties, and in the fall of 1934, she apparently fraternized with, quote, the boy in the warden's office. This came to the attention of prison officials who ensured the pair had no further contact. In any case, she received correspondence from numerous men, both past acquaintances and strangers, who addressed her as honey, darling, and dearest, and closed their letters with lovingly yours, wish you were leaving with me, and I love you too much. Blanche had possessive tendencies. When she discovered one of her admirers was also writing to another fellow inmate, she forced him to ghost the other woman. On February 22, 1935, Blanche, along with 21 other defendants, stood trial for the charge of harboring fugitives. This was a test case for a brand new federal law. Blanche's co-defendants included members and friends of the Parker and Barrow families, as well as relatives, wives, and girlfriends of former gang members who had in some way assisted Bonnie and Clyde. Blanche pleaded guilty and was sentenced to a year and a day to be served concurrently with her sentence that was already in effect. Bonnie's sister and Mary O'Dare were also ordered to serve a year and a day. Bonnie and Clyde's mothers received 30 days in jail and Clyde's teenage sister Marie was sentenced to an hour in custody. Clyde's father was never charged with any offense. Kumi Barrow, along with many others, officially offered Blanche a place to live for her parole paperwork. But by 1936, Blanche no longer kept in touch with Kumi. In March 1939, Blanche was paroled on the condition that she leave that county in Missouri and never return. 
She set off to Oklahoma to live with her father, but remarried a little over a year after her release from prison to a man named Eddie Frazier, two years her junior. Blanche was only 28 and ready to start life over. Eddie was a carpenter who eventually supervised a Dallas architectural and engineering firm. People who had met both Eddie and Buck remarked on how similar they were in both looks and personality. Blanche completely cut ties with her mother soon after she met Eddie. While still in prison, she had written her mother, Can't I ever make you understand that I left that name, Lua Taub, and the past that went with it, and that I will never go by that name anymore? Evidently, Lua Taub was an alias she had used in the past, possibly while on the run with Bonnie and Clyde, or with Buck after his escape from prison. During a visit with Blanche and her new beau Eddie, Lillian could not stop mentioning Buck Barrow and her daughter's misadventures. Blanche later scolded her mother for bringing up such, quote, sour onions and dirty shirts, as she called her wild past. Ten months after the Pearl Harbor attack in World War II, Eddie joined the Navy Seabees. He was trained as a combatant and carried a bar, which had always been Clyde and Buck Barrow's weapon of choice. Blanche wrote him letters overseas, somewhat weirdly calling him Daddy, just as she had with Buck. During that time, she became a dispatcher for the Yellow Cab Company, but quit and was a housewife in a home with an actual white picket fence for the rest of her married life once Eddie returned home. Influenced by her father, the couple began attending church, and Blanche even taught Sunday school, although they both enjoyed occasionally hitting up honky-tonk bars for a beer and dancing. Blanche mourned the fact that she couldn't conceive children, but instead she collected dolls and pets. She and Eddie traveled often and even visited Disneyland shortly after it opened. In the meantime, Emma Parker, along with Henry, Cumey, and Marie Barrow, and John Dillinger's father, toured for a short while with a traveling show called Crime Does Not Pay. They were hired to give anti-crime lectures and answer questions about their infamous children. The show's creator, who styled himself as a crime doctor, also bought the so-called death car in which Bonnie and Clyde were killed and made it available for public viewing. I viewed the car myself at its final resting place at Whiskey Pete's Casino in Prim, Nevada. Eddie wasn't pleased when actor Warren Beatty contacted Blanche about purchasing the rights to her name for his proposed 1967 film, Bonnie and Clyde. In fact, she would later say that the film, quote, nearly caused my husband to divorce me. Blanche developed a little bit of a crush on the young Warren Beatty, but that wasn't the reason for Eddie's concern. He hated Blanche's notoriety as part of the Barrow gang, and it was a subject she'd never mentioned in his presence. The film was nominated for several Oscars and sparked a huge retro interest in 1930s fashion, which makes me happy. Now, I've been hearing on podcasts and reading on various sites and even in one book that Blanche sued Warner Brothers for her portrayal on Bonnie and Clyde. She did not, in fact, sue. You heard it here. It's true that she wasn't happy about being portrayed as a, quote, screaming horse's ass, as she so accurately put it, but she did sign a contract with Warren Beatty, which she did not challenge. Instead, she happily used the money he paid her to buy a new fence for her property, according to an interview she gave in 1984. Those who sued were actually Bonnie's sister, W.D. Jones, and the family of the posse leader, Frank Hamer. I know that W.D. did not win his lawsuit, but I have no further information on the other two suits. The film script combined the characters of Blanche and Mary O'Dare, the woman Bonnie and Clyde kicked out of the gang, 
and also combined W.D. Jones and Henry Methvin into the fictional character of C.W. Moss. In 1969, Blanche's husband Eddie died of cancer. After his death, Blanche renewed ties with her former Barrow in-laws. Oddly enough, however, it was Bonnie's sister, Billie Jean, who now went by the name Jean Moon, who became her lifelong best friend. The first time they had met, when Billie Jean was summoned to care for Bonnie's leg burns, they hadn't really hit it off. But now, when Jean and her husband moved out of town, Blanche went with them. One day at a shopping checkout line, a woman asked a now elderly Blanche and Jean to watch her purse for a moment. As soon as she was out of sight, they burst out laughing, and Blanche remarked, If she only knew who we are. For the rest of her life, federal, state, and local authorities kept track of her and made sure she was aware that they'd always be watching her. Dallas police would call her periodically and were sometimes harassing, just as they had been with Clyde as a young ex-con. All her life, Blanche continued to favor jodhpurs, knee-high riding boots, and driving fast down Texas back roads. She loved to go antiquing and liked to collect costume jewelry. In 1984, Blanche was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment for four years. During her final days, her mother Lillian, now 93, visited her in the hospital. Blanche was still upset with her and wanted nothing to do with her. Blanche passed away on Christmas Eve 1988 in an intensive care unit in Tyler, Texas. She was 77 years old. Her estranged mother attended her funeral. She was buried at Grove Hill Cemetery in Dallas, near most of the Barrow siblings, as well as Billie Jean. By 1939, as Americans began to turn their thoughts to world war and peace, the gangster culture in the United States evaporated. The outlaws had all been killed, imprisoned, or executed. And now, romanticized worship of obedient servicemen would come into vogue, erasing the previous romanticization of rebellious love among society's outlaws. Blanche and Bonnie did have one thing in common besides their devotion to barrel men. After Blanche's death, a handwritten poem was discovered among her possessions. It was dated 1933, almost certainly written while she rode for miles in back seats, apprehensive and afraid. Across the fields of yesterday, she sometimes comes to me. A little girl just back from play, the girl I used to be. And yet she smiles so wistfully, once she has crept within. I wonder if she hopes to see the woman I might have been. That concludes today's blast into the weird past. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and consider rating us with five stars. Source information and further reading is listed on our website at classafelons.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back soon with another story told with vintage flair and big hair. Mm-hmm.